We can wonder about it. It's awesome. It's uh, marvelous. It's also very threatening, frightening, because it's all about the unknown and and what you can't see and what you can't be sure of when you try to uh, use your senses and the conditioning of your mind to understand reality. So in uh, this word reality is, uh, is, we use this word dhamma, what is real, and and then what is illusory, is the, you know, the the creations we make around the conditions, the way we identify, uh, judge ourselves, uh, are attached to the conditioning that we have, to identity with the body, uh, identity, uh, attachment to your thoughts, memories, emotions, conventions, cultural attitudes, assumptions, everything that, that's conditioned. We, you know, the average unenlightened, unawakened human being never questions it, just merely operates from the basic assumption, I'm this person and uh, without any reference to that assumption. So I've always, uh, these past years I've kind of really trying to put you into that uh, state of questioning, of reflection, such as I am an unenlightened person who needs to practice uh, in order to become enlightened in the future. And of course, most people, that's how we all began. We come into meditation or monastic life, this idea of I am somebody who wants to get something I don't have yet. I'm not good enough the way I am. Uh, I've got so many faults, uh, defilements, and in order to, I've got to meditate in order to free myself from them and become enlightened in the future. And even today, many people, even Buddhist people born in Buddhist countries feel that they can't ever get enlightened. Uh, you hear them saying, you know, the days of being enlightened as an arahant are past. So we have various opinions. Uh, we can form all kinds of delusions even by grasping the scriptural teachings or the assumptions of a culture. But when you really begin to... Uh, use the Buddhist teaching uh, for reflection, it's not for grasping or for believing, but for reflection, then uh, you begin to see what, you know, the, the suffering you create by these illusions, by these assumptions. So the, the, the first one, the one that is the most uh, persistent and uh, seems most real to us is I am a person. I am somebody that needs to do something or practicing on this retreat, uh, the end of the vasa, uh, in order to get something I don't have yet, such as I want to get insight or I want to get rid of my defilement, I want to get rid of anger, I want to become pure, 
I want to improve myself, uh, whatever you, however you see yourself at this moment, it's not that it's wrong or that you should not have these thoughts, but what I'm recommending is to be aware of it as what it is. A thought, I am an unenlightened person, is a thought, isn't it? It's a series of thoughts. And that's what it is. It's, uh, the, you know, in the English context, English grammar, I am uh, somebody is a thing, is a way we think and identify with the body, with the conditioning of the, of the mind. So then the awakened consciousness is being awake to that, being recognizing that I am is a, is a convention and be able to question uh, this, this, this sense of I am this body, this person. And then the way that that follows along in a, in a whole pattern of I am, uh, you know, the age of the boy, I'm young, I'm old, I'm male, I'm female, I'm, uh, tall or short, fat or thin, black or white, European or Asian, I am, it goes on endlessly into all the various uh, conditions, variations on condition phenomena that we identify with. But the gate to the deathless then is this awareness of that. And so I keep pointing this out, trying to keep insisting uh, and, and encouraging you to look at this, this sense of I am. Not to, to judge it and say that it's, uh, you shouldn't think such a thought, but to recognize it for what it is. And then you can actually, uh, you know, you have the insight into that, that uh, this Awareness is the, is the Dhamma, is reality. And these conditions that you're aware of are, you know, rise and cease according to other conditions. So the, even the thought, I am an unenlightened person, is a condition that arises and ceases. None of us go around thinking that as a continuous obsessive thought pattern that uh, dominates every moment of our life, but we can believe it. In other words, we, when we don't question and don't reflect, then we tend to believe these assumptions. The society affirms them. Uh, you know, people we live with, the sangha, the, the, the cultural attitudes all from you, you are somebody with defilement that's got to purify yourself. <clears throat> And it's not that that's wrong, it's not about wrong or right anymore, but about what is conditioned and unconditioned. So this awareness, mindfulness, is the door. It's the, it's the, only, it's, it's the only way we can get perspective on the condition. Uh, and as long as you you don't appreciate that or don't 
really recognize the importance of this, then of course you're going to spend maybe your whole life just trying to perfect yourself as a person or as a monk or as a nun or trying to perfect the world, trying to get, uh, you know, change the world, the society and make it better and better. Which is praiseworthy in, in worldly terms, but it was not, never the way to liberation and can lead to despair and disillusionment very easily. So this, this sense of I am is uh, what we call Sakaya Ditti. Uh, during this week-long retreat, really contemplate the first three fetters, Sakya Ditti, Sila Bhatta Bharamasa, Vichikita. These, uh, th- these are very skillful words, uh, but apply them. Now it's not about memorizing poly words and being able to repeat them, but they're actually pointing at uh, this sense of I am, the ego, what you call the ego, or the personality view, the sense of yourself as a personality, as a physical being, as a human being, whatever. Also, the thinking process is conditioned. And so it's, it, uh, you know, we, we have words, grammar, uh, we, we tend to project onto everything, we give it names. And the name for the object tends to be more real to us than the object themselves. So we can think about, in, in abstract ways, we can remember all kinds of things, uh, naming this, naming that, uh, you know, through memories of the past. The, the ability to remember, we have this retentive memory, so we, we have to remember what we do, you know, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, we tend to remember it. In our own uh, monastic form, we've got the Vinaya and the Sila as a kind of conventional form about action and speech, how we, you know, our agreement on how we're going to live together uh, in this monastery. So it's based on moral precepts, on uh, it's a system of, of etiquette, of learning, uh, you know, of agreeing to live within the, this structure, moral structure, uh, social structure, not for identity or, you know, but for an agreement, a way of, that we can actually begin to reflect because we're, we, ha- we develop a sense of trust and respect through our social agreements based on, on morality. If we didn't have that, then it would be each one for themselves, wouldn't it? It's a survival of the fittest, uh, me against you. But because we can agree, then we can also begin to, uh, you know, this, just like, uh, 
encouraging you to keep the noble silence during this retreat. Uh, because we can agree to that. You know, that's part of the, the, the retreat style. And then we can reflect on our own impulses to, to talk or to chit-chat or to, you know, seek uh, conversations or our own tendencies towards just uh, speaking whenever the impulse arises. So the, the determination for noble silence isn't a kind of something one grasps and, and uses as out of uh, the self-view, but it's, a, it's an a, agreement we use to respect each other's practice and to restrain ourselves from impulsive habits of speaking or chatting, social engagements. Now we live in a very violent universe, so when you, you know, you contemplate nature around us, you know we have uh, uh, law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. I was watching these uh, Planet Earth films by uh, David At- Attenborough or Richard, I forget which, and uh, Attenborough anyway. And uh, you know, you, you look at these fantastic DVDs about nature and uh, how everything is uh, eating each, you know, eating some some other creature. Uh, these uh, these uh, schools of fish in the Atlantic Ocean, the whales come on and just scoop them up, swallow a whole school of fish, and birds getting fish flying down and taking what's left over. And uh, this, this uh, consuming, uh, this endless consumption and killing and violence, that's a part of this planetary life. Survival of the fittest. And then we have, uh, you know, we have problems with rats, so, so we, we have these uh, feral cats that are supposed to uh, eat the rats. Because <laughs> we're not supposed to kill anything. But we also have to obey the laws, which, you know, about not having vermin in the kitchen. So then these moral dilemmas arise, but this is nature. Nature is like this. It's all about violence and eating, and and it's also about, uh, you know, breeding, nurturing, procreating. <clears throat> so reflecting in this way, it's not to judge it and, and just be, you know, think that it should be otherwise, but to recognize the very forces of this planet that we're living on and the, the human bodies we have, the energies and tendencies, just on the level of, of uh, sexual desires, sexual energies, or violent energies. We have the same energies, uh, you know, that can lead towards violence and murder and killing and slaughter. As, as all other animals. But human beings have a, a certain conceit that we're somehow better than the rest. And that's 
another delusion that somehow we are better than the other animals. But the thing that we, that the Buddha pointed to was not to consider ourselves better, but to awaken. And this is the great uh, gift of human birth, is this reflectiveness, ability to contemplate our own existence, to, to observe uh, our emotions, our tendencies, uh, the violent ones, the lustful ones, the confused, the, the vanity, the, the fears that haunt our world. You know, these are natural, these are part of this realm. It's a fear realm that we're experiencing. Survival, procreation. And yet in this realm is this opportunity that I'm pointing to during this retreat is to awaken to it. Not a judgment. It's not to to uh, criticize it, but to recognize. And in this way that Buddhism keeps saying all conditions are impermanent. The pace and Karani cha. This continuous refrain. Don't just think it or chant it as a kind of mechanical uh, mantra. But apply it and recognize, you know, you're looking at change rather than trying to make problems around the quality, quantity of the conditions that you're experiencing uh, through your senses, through your mind. So these, uh, this anicca, sape sankara anicca, <clears throat> Sape means all, condi- uh, all conditions. Sankara means conditions. All phenomena. Phenomena, conditions, are impermanent. Anicca. So this is uh, to be reflected on, to observe. So it's not like you're projecting the concept of anicca onto experience. It's just a reminder, that phrase, the Pei Sankarani Cha, is a reminder. And sometimes we, we get it wrong, we're always projecting, we're saying everything is impermanent, as a kind of, uh, in a way of dismissing life. It's not just uh, being able to say everything is impermanent and then and not observe impermanence, be the knower of impermanence. So that's where this gate to the deathless is knowing impermanence, knowing anicca, being able to recognize it. All conditions, so it, it's about the coarse, the subtle, the refined, whatever the conditions can be, because condition phenomena has endless varieties, qualities, quantities, you know, from minute to, to grand, from uh, you know, the microscopic to the macroscopic. Uh, it's all, you know, whether it's good or bad, heaven or hell, right or wrong, <clears throat> the best or the worst, or all, any kind of, uh, any kind of condition whatsoever, from the extremes to, to the more kind of, uh, uh, middle modeling, uh, gray areas of conditioned phenomena, it's all impermanent. And so this impermanence is is what we recognize through awareness.
So just like observing your breath, your own body breathing, that's the pattern, isn't it? it you, you breathe in and you breathe out. The body, it's not you breathing. You don't tell yourself to breathe. The body breathes. It knows what to do. <clears throat> and so it, but you can bring attention to breathing, to inhaling, exhaling. And that's like mindfulness of the breath, isn't it? So you're using the, your, body breathing as a, as a observing it, not as do I breathe as good as somebody else, or am I breathing rightly according to Buddhist monastics, or we can make a problem about breathing. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, you know, whatever way you're breathing, just be aware of it. It's like this, if it's shallow or deep, long or short, pleasant or unpleasant, it's this way. So this is like recognizing awareness is not breathing. Breathing is, you're observing the breathing. There's a, the observation, the recognition. Awareness allows you to follow the breath from its arising to its cessation. That's mindfulness. It's not dependent on inhaling and then you're not mindful anymore. You as you uh, cultivate the path of awareness, then mindfulness of breathing in, breathing out, is like this. The same applies to the postures of the body, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. These bodies need to change positions. You can't just sit or stand or walk or lie down for all that long without feeling discomfort or pain or restlessness, needs of the body, functions of the body, demand that we move them. So awareness of the body and its posture, that which is aware of the body, that which is aware of the breath, is that me, Ajahn Sumato, watching my breath, or me watching my body? Or is that sense of me doing something, so another condition that comes and goes, arises and ceases? But when the sense of me and mine is gone, then there is the awareness still operating. And so this is what we, we recognize, uh, is begin to appreciate, begin to, uh, Value this gate, this door. We call it the deathless. The deathless then can, can observe, can know death. So just contemplate that. The unconditioned is aware, uh, that allows us to get perspective on the condition. So mindfulness then is the the gate to that deathless, to that unconditioned reality. Baramatta Dhamma, Baramatta Satcha, ultimate reality. <clears throat> but if you still operate from the Sakyaditi level, you'll just get confused by this. Because Sakyaditi 
Uh, if you don't pinpoint it and see it and recognize its limitation, uh, the personality view, if you don't recognize it, if you operate from Sakya Ditti, then that will always create more Sakya Ditti. Even no matter how determined and dedicated you are to practice, you'll end up with more Sakya Ditti. Because, you know, you've, you've not, you, you just, maybe you've become, you know, you become a, a monk or a nun, you become a junior monk or senior nun or anagarika, you identify, you, you become the conventions. You become a good meditator or not very good meditator. But if you trust in the awareness of Sakya Ditti, it's not that there's anything wrong with Sakya Ditti. It's not like a judgment saying we shouldn't have any ego or any Sakya Ditti. It's to know it. It is impermanent. It arises and ceases. And then Sape Tama Anatta, all Dhamma is not self. We don't have any self that is conditioned self or a separate condition that is what I can, in the Sakyaditi realm, that I can operate from, that I can trust. There's no Sakyaditi that I can, that I am willing to use as my basis for meditation. Because if I don't recognize that, then after years of meditation, diligent practicing, the basic illusion has never been recognized. Uh, the result might be you have good uh, concentration or you, you have, uh, you know, you become a, a good samana, you become saintly and, and, and a good person but still not enlightened, not liberated. Or you might just give up because, you know, how can we just be good? You know, is that, you know, just be nice people, good people, well-mannered, uh, loving, uh, generous, happy, compassionate, joyful, personalities as a kind of permanent state. You know, we, there's no permanency in all these good qualities. So we have to deal with uh, anger and fear and jealousy and resentment and greed. Because these are a part of this realm. They're the energies and the, that that we are experiencing through the the uh, human form this planetary life is like this and that awareness then is the only way out of that realm to escape that not to destroy it but to liberate ourselves from that blind ignorance, that blind attachment to conditioned phenomena.
Now this is, this is our opportunity. This is a rare opportunity actually. There's not many, you know, this kind of uh, opportunity we have here at Amravati is quite rare in the, in the world. Because the worldly life at this time is based on total, on Sakya Diti, really. On ignorance. So the society we live in is all about ignorance and, and self-views and trying to get something or get rid of something, control something, judging, evaluating, criticizing, fearing, envying, you know, so we have wars and endless strife and social problems and, you know, as we all know, you listen to the news or anything, it's, or just even in a monastery, one can be just caught up in endless problems, personal problems, uh, because this is the cultural tendency to see ourselves and operate from this Sakya Diti. So that's why it, it, the, what I'm encouraging is to know Sakya Diti, not to get rid of it or judge it. Because even if it's selfish and foolish and, and whatnot, it is still a condition. Even if, even if it's, uh, you know, whatever its quality might be, that which is aware is not Sakya Diti. So as human individuals, we have this this great opportunity to stand at the door of the deathless and observe, because we're we're kind of in between the death and the deathless. It's the kind of uh, where the death and deathless meet is this human is this very moment here and now. And so uh, this is what mindfulness is putting us, putting ourselves into that gate or that gap or that place aware that we call intuitive awareness. To know, to discern the death-bound conditions. All conditions are impermanent. They arise and cease, they change, they're good and bad, right and wrong. Course subtle, refined, heaven, hell, devils and angels, and all the rest. So, And then our, within, and this is a kind of magic, or the marvel of our human birth, is that as a human individual, we can actually uh, sustain, through recognizing the awareness, this position of uh, uh, discerning mindfulness as as uh, as a cultivating mindfulness, developing mindfulness in daily life, with the conditions uh, as they may might be, physically, personally, externally, internally, whatever as the conditions are, you know, infinite in their variety and forever changing. So at least we're trying to 
put the conditions into perspective here in a monastery that we agree just say on on ways of behavior, action and speech. So that 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 is uh, you know the vinaya is a conventional form. It's a traditional form, and it's agreement of how we we're going to relate to each other, so that we can begin to awaken to sakyaditi. If we're always negotiating our relationships and and you know personal feelings about each other, then we're no longer in that point of intersection between the death and the deathless. We're we're back in the deathbound conditions of struggling and striving and and uh, trying to control things complaining blaming and all the rest come from from that endless struggle in in our, our personal habits so recognize the, the value of this convention this that we're using is it is a convention but it it's not for Grasping, or for identity, or for vanity, or you know, it's not for sakyaditi. It's merely an expedient means to be able to recognize sakyaditi and the suffering we create through blindly being caught in this personality, these personality habits, these uh, attachment to uh, cultural conventions cultural conditioning, society, identities, and all the rest. The whole cultural conditioning that, that we have, and the thinking mind. The thinking mind is a convention, which always leads to wichikicha, or uncertainty, insecurity, doubt. So these three fetters, they're called fetters, Sanyojana in Pali, they are the obstructions to stream entry. So my endeavors now in, are to, to keep reminding you, because we do forget, we get caught up in our own habits very quickly, not to try to become a stream enterer, because that's sakyaditi again. It's not about becoming a, a sotapanna or a stream enterer, but it's about using these structures with mindfulness and wisdom. So these, these uh, fetters, the first three fetters are, you know, after that, once you really uh, kind of uh, see and and know these three fetters, then you then you have insight into the path of liberation. And that path is very definite. It's not a fuzzy kind of path that is dependent on controlling everything, you know, so that everything's quiet and tranquil. It's not about uh, concentrating the mind on one thing by shutting everything out. But it's awakening to ultimate reality, 
recognizing it and cultivating from that ultimate reality as we have to experience the result of having been born in these human forms and uh, the karma we've made in the past. As, it, as things change and, and we get older and various, you know, we have to deal with age, sickness, death, loss, all these these uh, changing conditions uh, that we still experience, but our relationship to them is no longer out of Sakyaditi, but through Panya, or wisdom, discernment. So, see this, uh, you know, this is uh, this is an encouragement, because you can't order people to do this. You know, you can't you know, browbeat them into doing this kind of practice. <laughs> you know, threaten them. It's about it's about encouraging. Because the biggest problem with Sakyaditi is we tend to is our self critical habits. Is that we do feel you know, we really believe that we are, there's something wrong, we're not in, you know, that I need to get something I don't have, or I've got problems, or that, that I've got to get rid of, I'm not good enough, I'm not pure. How, how many of you think you're really pure enough? Or good enough? You know, we can think, no, I'm not, I'm not uh, pure enough, I'm not good enough is usually what, you know, most, some people think they're pure and that, but they're, they're the impossible ones. <clears throat> it, you know, one thing is self-disparagement, at least it, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, you're going in the right direction, you know, you're looking at the self, but, but you're just criticizing, you're, you're identifying with it. Where when you really believe, I'm so pure and good that I know, that is very difficult to get any perspective on because you, you, uh, it's hard to reflect on that because it's uh, so maybe you're attached to believing in it. So it's not about thinking or th- thinking that you're pure or that you're good enough. It's not about just changing the I am to I'm no good to I'm good, but it's transcending the thinking process. That which is aware of thinking is not thinking, but it's certainly discerning, intelligent, alert. And it's not bound by language or conditions. It's aware of conditions. It discerns conditions, knows conditions, And then, then within this human form that we live with till it dies, and we, that's our refuge is in this awareness. So the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, these refuges, use them more for, <clears throat> you know, kind of internalize these three words, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Not in Sakya Ditti way, but 
nothing, I'm a Buddha, whatever, that's Sakyaditi. But taking refuge in the Buddha is being in this crossroads, this gate to the deathless, being at that point of intersection between time and the timeless. And that is, you know, you try to think about it, you, you will, uh, you know, you, you end up doubting and making it into something more than it is. So it's a matter of, of just trusting, the awakenness is just this much. It's just paying attention, open attention, watching, listening. And then you, your Sakya Ditti might say, oh, well, I'm not very good at that yet. I, and I read in the scriptures that you have to get proper samadhi, you've got to get kanika, and then all these other levels of samadhi before you can do vipassana. And I don't think my samadhi is good enough for this. And that's sakyaditi again. You know, so you grab scriptural authority and make it into sakyaditi for yourself. Uh, and so this is where the encouragement is to awaken to that. This sense of I am, I am not, I should, I shouldn't. So this is what they call the Majjhima Bhati Bhatta or the middle way. But it's not a kind of compromise of, of conditioned phenomena into a kind of, you know, bland, uh, tasteless porridge. Uh, the middle way, but it's it's a really transcendent consciousness that is no longer bound and limited by the conditioning process. Because this is a fully conscious reality. You know, you, when you're aware, when there's mindfulness, there's consciousness. You don't go unconscious. But it's consciousness that isn't isn't distorted through Sakyaditi, Silabhata Baramasa, Vichikicca. So these three fetters, like Sakyaditi, the person, they say personality view, uh, the ego, whatever way, it's a sense of self, how you see yourself as an individual through, you know, your identity with your physical parents, with, uh, you know, your memories and tendencies, emotions, habits. Then Sila uh, Bhattabharamasa was a kind of a mouthful of a word, but what it means is a uh, conventional form, so like cultural conditioning, social conditioning. We, we acquire a lot of cultural conditioning, attitudes, assumptions that are from being born into particular social situations or cultures or ethnic groups or religions. You know, that may, they aren't necessarily Sakya Ditti, but they're, they're, they're conditioned attitudes that you acquire through uh, being born into the families that you're born into and the ethnic identities, racial identities, cultural identities. So Sita Bhattabhara, and even Sita Bhattabhara Masa can be uh, being attached to Buddhism. You know, like, I'm a Theravadan Buddhist, 
and uh, you're a Mahayana Buddhist, and Theravada is the pure teaching, and oh no, this is Silabhata Brahma. <laughs> so I mean, it's uh, you know it's being attached to to being Theravadan or or even being Buddhist, as if Buddhism separated us from you know you're Christian and I'm a Buddhist. And then it goes into, I'm a Theravadan Buddhist, you're a Mahayana Buddhist. And then in Thailand it goes into, I'm Mahanikai and you're Tamiyun. And then it goes into, you're, uh, we're forest monks and you're uh, town monks. <laughs> I mean, it's always, this is what the language does. It always, it's always about uh, division, separation. It's not about discerning, it's about criticizing. About what is better or worse, bigger or smaller, right or wrong. So all this can be under Sila Bhattabharamasa and then Wichikicha, doubt. Let's contemplate doubt as, you know, not being sure. Insecurity feeling of insecurity, uncertainty, doubt. And one is aware of, I don't know, I'm not certain, I feel confused, I feel, uh, you know, I feel very insecure, I feel, uh, I, I want you to tell me, Ajahn Sumato, how I should practice. Please tell me exactly, you know, should I, should I do samatha first and then vipassana? Should I practice anapanasati for how many minutes and then go into body awareness? Or should I do body awareness first and then do anapanasati and then do vipassana? Or when does the metta practice come in? You get yourself into a real mental twist with just grasping very good concepts. And it's doubt, isn't it? I don't quite know what to do right now. And then, and the awareness of that, not sure, not knowing, is like this. And that's a knowing, isn't it? A knowing of not knowing. It's not knowing about things or having a prescription or saying Ajahn Sumedho told me to do this or the scriptures say. It's, it's not about what other people say or what scriptural authority tells you, but it's a direct knowing and a discerning intelligence that we're taking refuge in. So Buddha is this refuge of awareness. Dhamma is the reality that we're aware of. And Sangha is uh, those practicing, like ourselves, Sangha, who, Supatipano, Ujupatipano, and uh, like practice in the right way, directly. It's not about even being a monk or a nun or Samana or anything, it's about Supatipano, Ujupatipano, Yayapatipano, insightful practice. Those who practice with integrity. So it's, it's not about, do I have enough integrity? Am I really, 
a supatipano or not? Am I really ujupatipano? And then you're back in Sakyaditi, you see. So it's not about me becoming a Buddha or uh, Ajahn Sumedho's Dhamma or I'm Sangha. It doesn't apply anymore. This is, they use these three refuges. They're, they're not for grasping, but for helping you to get out of these Sakyaditi problems of, uh, that we tend to have. It's a quite insidious Sakyaditi. But when you really begin to recognize it, it's so obvious. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, it's, a, it's very clear what it is. And then the inevitably somebody's asked, well, what is it, who is it that knows Sakyaditi? Is that Sakyaditi? Because <laughs> we, we're, it's, you know, out of ignorance of Dhamma, then we're, we're, we don't know the difference. We don't discern the difference. We are, we are, you know, our thoughts, we are the physical forms, the cultural conditions, the emotions that we have. We, we identify, we judge, we criticize ourselves in the world and others and on and on like this. So, but then awareness or puto, taking refuge in Buddha, then this puts us into this deathless, this point of intersection between the deathless and death. And that's, that's this human, human experience in the, this birth as a human individual is that this is, this is what the Buddha is pointing to. Just this, you know, doesn't we, we transcend the body and we say goodbye forever and we lose our bodies and everything else. We all, you know, we, this point of intersection, we, uh, we live our lifespan within these conditions, but our relationship to them is through wisdom rather than through ignorance and attachment. So to me, this is very important to uh, to see, to know for yourself, because, you know, you, you might, you know, you, it's not about me telling you, but it, what I'm saying is, is just uh, an encouragement uh, to, to kind of encourage you to, to really put forth this kind of effort to investigate, to know for yourself. And then these Buddhist teaching, like the Four Noble Truths, Paticca Samupada, these are very skillful means for investigating reality. It's a very effective tool, the Four Noble Truths. But if it's just grasped as a Buddhist teaching, then, you know, it's probably better than grasping other things, but, you know, it's like the key to the prison cell. You've got the key, but you don't use it. So you're still in prison, even though you've got the way out. So the Buddha comes, you're in prison, the Buddha gives you, this is the key. Now you're in this stinking, rotten little cell and you want out, well then here's the key, hands it to you. And they, now did you just see that hole under the door? 
knob there on the door of the prison cell, insert the key, and then turn the key to the right, and then twist the knob, and the door will open and you can get out. So the ignorant person hears that and says, oh, the Buddha gave me the key for liberation. And you hang it on the wall of your prison cell <laughs> and worship it. So it's, it's probably better than not having anything at all, but it's not liberating. And then another person, that same thing happens and he puts the key into the hole, keyhole, but turns it the wrong way, turns it to the left and right, and tries to open the door, but it won't open. So he says, doesn't work. And then the third one, who listened to the directions and followed them precisely, does all the right things and gets out, frees, him, frees himself or herself from that horrible prison cell. Now this is, see, this is the key, the Four Noble Truths. Use it for liberation. It's not for hanging on the wall and worshipping, or just because it doesn't, maybe you don't use it skillfully enough the first time, so you think it doesn't work. But it's true, the kind of persistence of, you know, experimenting, investigating the reality of this moment, here and now, till you actually can open this door and free yourself from the uh, misery of the prison. So then it is, we have one week left. This is the last week of the Vasa. And so we start thinking uh, about the future, what we're going to do. <laughs> Observe that. You know, how, especially as something begins, at the beginning of the Vasa, is the state of mind is one way. And then at the end, like the last week, we got about, you know, the mind turns towards the future. All the katinas and travel and here and there and this and that. And so, uh, be the, you know, don't, you know, during this retreat at least try to observe that. How, you know, you can spend this whole retreat planning your moves after the Vasa. Uh, and it's not this, to, you know, it's not about saying that you shouldn't do that, but be the knower of it. It's like this. Because that's in the future, isn't it? The end of Vasa. Is, is this moment here and now is, is not the end of the Vasa. That's in the future. The future is the unknown. So it's the, well, I don't know. Should I, or shouldn't I, or should I just stay in one place? Should I go somewhere else? What should I do? And you could spend this whole last week of the Vasa trying to figure out what you should do after the Vasa. But it's more important for you to see that, to be the knower of uncertainty, doubt, michikita. The future is always the unknown, isn't it? It's, it's what hasn't happened. 
its possibility, its probability, its uh, you know worries, dreads, fears, all about the future. And then you then memories of the past. You, you think of what's happened this past year here at Amravati, and you get caught in memories. And then the future. And now is the knowing. So this is this is where the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the refuges are. This is the gate to the deathless. This is the point of intersection between timeless and time. This is, uh, and so by keep reminding yourself and, and constantly referring to this present, you know, here and now, the body, the breath, the sound of silence, this awareness, the being aware of your state of mind, whatever it is, if it's, you know, your mood, your, your uh, emotional conditions of the present are like this, whatever they might be. So it's Pachubana Tama here and now, and uh, keep no matter how many, no how much you get carried away by your emotions or desires or whatever. There's always a point where you kind of catch yourself. So you you know this is like when you you start thinking I've got to be mindful, and then you start planning all your moves after the vasa. And then suddenly you, you, you realize what you're doing. And at that moment, then go to something like the, the breath or the body or just be the observer. Sound of silence. Or just remember, even if you forget right away. It's a matter of training, keep returning, always establishing this presence here and now. Uh, and then, you know, to keep, keep coming, keep, keep uh, remembering here and now until it sticks. Till you, you find, you know, you stick to the constancy of the supernal mind that needs not move. In my own practice, this, this, uh, you know, in the beginning years, it just seemed hopeless because my, you know, my, I was always caught in the movement of my emotions and thoughts. And even though I'd have flashes of insight, it seemed hopeless because uh, of just the power of my karma, of my emotional tendencies, of my personality, reactions to life. But this is like persistence, like, uh, cultivating bhavana is about this, you know, pachubhanantamma, remembering here and now, mindfulness, and and then don't don't get caught up in in how many times you fail because it's back into sakya ditti again, isn't it? If you you know, I've got to be mindful. Like Ajahn Sumato's teaching this, and I've got to. I shouldn't be planning my, uh, after the Vasa. Ajahn Sumedha said, I shouldn't be thinking about after the Vasa. I should always be here and now. I'm going to do that. And then, 
two seconds later you're off thinking, well, after the boss I've got it. <laughs> and then maybe you spend the whole day planning, making your moves for what you're going to do after the boss. Huh? And then that point, suddenly you realize, And trust that. That's a, that's a, that's a point of, that's a moment of awareness. And don't go around saying, oh, I'm not mindful, like, you know, feeling guilty and, and, uh, and kind of persecuting yourself because you've spent the whole day doing something you vowed you would never do. I mean, it's, it's like just training to, to, to try, to recognize that, you know, no matter how good our intentions are, we and we we tend to get caught up into things, and then, but there is this point where we suddenly realize, and it even and it oftentimes goes into self-disparagement, feeling despair about ourselves and our practice. So I encourage you not to do that. It's a waste of time to do that. Uh, just trust that you know that point and kind of bow to that point of awareness. Put your hands together and say, thank you. And listen to the silence or the breath or bring you, you know, to be present with the way it is. <clears throat> so I offer this for your reflection.